You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. This is Ken Vellante with the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast, and uh, very excited to have a panel of guests uh, here, uh, artists who work in ceramics, uh, Magdalene Dijkstra, Natalia Arbelayez, Habiba Al-Sayed, and Heidi McKenzie, who have done a presentation of this sort um, uh, in the past, but what we really want to get into is discussing uh, what the canon is uh, in the art field and what do we do about it and whose uh, interest does it serve and what uh, needs needs to happen i'd like uh, each of my guests to uh, uh, introduce introduce themselves uh, to you my listeners i'm going to start with uh, a friend of yours uh, from a prior episode uh, magdalene dykstra welcome back to the program so happy to have you and and thanks for bringing uh your your artist friends um uh, tell us about yourself magdalene Thanks, Ken. Yeah. Uh, well, my name is Magdalene Dykstra, and I am based in St. Catharines, Ontario. Um, I'm an artist educator. I just finished a visiting artist in residence position at Concordia University in Montreal. Um, but uh, since then, I've returned to St. Catharines as my home base. Uh, my work currently occupies two positions. Um, on one side of my work, I use clay often in an unfired way um, to meditate on the vast number of human beings that are on the planet. Um, and then on the other side, the other position my work is occupying is uh, finger paintings. So works on paper where I use my fingerprint to create fields of color. Yeah. And uh, uh, again, welcome. Welcome back. Uh, Magdalene. Um, Natalia Arbelias, uh, uh the listeners Hi, would love to hear um, from you. Yes, I'm Natalia Arbelias. I'm currently in Pomona, California, doing a residency at AMOCA, where I'm um, studying, researching their permanent collection to highlight women of color who uh, played a important part in ceramic history. And um, so right now I'm just doing the, the research part and also making in their studio. But um, normally I'm from, I live in Brewster, New York, um, and where I actually kicked off that project at Mad Museum um, in New York City, where I actually uh, did make the, the physical pieces of that work. So yeah. And I do various work. So that's a current project that I'm working on. I also do a lot of work about um, immigration and um, history weaved in with contemporary um, influences, speaking of my uh, American upbringing combined with my Colombian ancestry. Yeah, thank you. Um, I do want to say uh, I, 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 I've seen all of your art, and um, I'm really humbled. Um, you're just um, excellent artist, and I'm very excited for this conversation. Habiba El Sayed. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Uh, yeah, my name is Habiba El Sayed. Um, I am living and working in Toronto, Ontario. Um, I rent studio space in Toronto's East End, um, and like a really vibrant, uh, diverse neighborhood. So that's really awesome. Um, yeah, my work is, my practice is very diverse. I do everything from 
performance art to durational works. I do some sculptural work as well. Um, and most recently, uh, some design work um, and have been uh, just finished up a commission of 650 mugs. So that was uh, quite a task for me. Um, but in my uh, contemporary art practice, um, I mainly focus on perception and the way people of color um, view themselves, view the world and the way the, the world views them in return. Um, and yeah, I used to use a bunch of different techniques, some traditional, some not so traditional, um, yeah, to, to talk about my different things. I also do some uh, uh, pottery instruction as well, uh, which I would I'm very excited to get back to once pandemic stuff has sort of blown over a little bit. Yeah, Habiba, thank you. Thank you for your art. And last but not least, Heidi McKenzie. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ken. Uh, so I am based in uh, Parkdale in the West End in Toronto, and I have a, a basement studio um, where I generate most of my work. I have been, uh, I guess I'm kind of a, I call, the, I call this a late bloomer in the sense that I came to Clay as, as a third career, uh, and I, I finished my MFA in 2014 at OCAD-U, um, and I have been I think I, I'm an abstractionist in my heart and in my soul. And I started working in sculpture before I even made bowls or cups. Um, and so I have my whole practice has been kind of about uh, expressing who I am autobiographically uh, through art. And I have moved on, um, you know, more recently. I started working with photography on clay in, in 2014. Um, and I guess in the last few years, I have moved on to look more closely at um, memory, race, migration, and ancestry, and my own mixed Indo-Trinidadian, Indo-Caribbean, because I've found out more recently that my father's roots are, are Guyanese, um, and uh, my, my, my mother's roots, which are uh, Irish-American. And um, I, think, I think it's just, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time during uh, COVID doing a lot of genealogical research and uncovering a lot of uh, facts that that uh, people in my family might not have known. Or certainly people in my generation, both sides of my family might not have known. And I'm just starting to re-input that into the new body of work. Yeah, uh, and, and thank you, Heidi. And, and, and you, know, um, you know, about questions of identity, the process you describe, I've gone into that myself just just recently and uh quite honestly without specifics um encountering things that say i am not who i was and i might be something different and what does that mean and that's been a daily experience for me um i'm comfortable with it but it is a strange and different uh type of experience okay so uh, we're talking about the canon right and so uh you know for me i i went uh you know when i went to college um I was, I got, I got the, things were changing. I went to college in the nineties, things were changing, but gosh, they were, the, the discourse was like, oh, that means you're getting rid of Shakespeare, right? I was an English lit guy. Shakespeare's gone, you know, the cultural wars are, are happening. But for me, um, I want to know, particularly in your field and for the listeners in, in, in ceramics, which is something that you've talked about in addressing the canon. What is the canon in ceramics? Who's there? And who is noticeably uh, absent 
Um, I can start addressing that question. Um, I'll just speak to my experience uh, as a student and um, both in ceramics and the larger fine arts um, fields that I was studying. And um, the canon to me, the, the story that was told of, of where the field has been and therefore where it might continue going um, basically embodied the idea of white as default. Um, all the artists with maybe a few uh, exceptions. Um, all the artists I was being exposed to as examples of this is what an artist looks like. This is what a ceramicist looks like. Um, were white and often they were men. And uh, it, um, it, it became really exhausting to never see an example of someone who looks like me, a woman who is not a white woman, um, being held up as as an example of expertise, an example of achievement. Um, so for me, that's where I come in with the canon. Uh, uh, sort of a, um, I'm coming to it with a level of exhaustion of it being so limited. Yeah, uh, one of the Can things I, I wanted to on? mention, uh, I, I had seen your present the presentation in uh, on, on disrupting the canon. And one of the things that was so frustrating for me was there's so much to go into here. And obviously we get a podcast to do, but you know, there's so much to get into here and the, the wonderful examples that you would show of like, you know, women who traversed like uh, the sea made it over, held the family together and all these stories. And it's like, well, I got a couple minutes to tell you about this amazing artist that you don't know about. And I, I, I understand that frustration because, um, even myself looking to, to see it as a viewer. Um, uh, Natalia, oh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Heidi, about the about the canon, your thoughts. Well, I, I just wanted to build on what uh, Magdalene was saying, which is um, for me, it, it started, or the seeds of me wanting to work around um, race and redress and putting women of color forefront on the stage started, uh almost 25 years ago. Um, and I, I started working in arts policy and I did my first graduate degree in, in arts policy. And um, so, so more than exhaustion, it was outrage because at that time in the arts councils in Canada, um, artists of color were, were literally being shuffled and funneled into folk arts, community arts, and multicultural arts. And we were not, uh, you know, encouraged to uh, although we were not denied, we were certainly not encouraged to be applying in mainstream visual arts, uh, theater, dance, um, literature, etc. And I mean, that just ignited outrage, <laughs> like rage, actually rage. Let's just call it rage. <laughs> and yeah. uh, so then, you know, I, I did go and study about the first, you know, settler communities, the largest immigrant communities in the UK and France and where their arts policies came from and how systemically racist they were um, and, 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 and trying to understand where we are in Canada. And anyway, I didn't, I did end up briefly working in arts policy, um, but um, things have obviously shifted enormously in the last couple of decades. But I think 
for me, that was the genesis. And that when I became an artist or I came to clay as a, as a, as a medium, it, 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 it just has, has fueled that passion because, um, again, as Magdalene had mentioned, the stage has been largely uh, white dominated and, 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 and specifically Eurocentric settler dominated. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I um, feel that my my work has always been filling a gap that I've been feeling in art history and academia and in in research. So, you know, it started looking at Central and South American ceramics because in academia those were like the glanced over um, histories that we were looking. It was like Africa, South and Central and Amerindian art was all just one chapter briefed over. Other countries got their whole chapter. China got a whole chapter, England. And I remember in my history class, like correcting the teacher because a lot of the information he just didn't know as well. So it, it started with that of like wanting to fill this gap that I was feeling. And then eventually it turned into, um, uh, the women of color in contemporary ceramics that um, that I was not seeing. So I started researching myself as well to fill that gap for myself and for um, academia and, and the field. So, you know, as I was going through Mad Museum's collection, they only have 11 women of color in their ceramic permanent collection. And that's 11 women to their 11 bulkest pieces. So there's definitely a huge gap. And I'm hoping with the work that I'm doing that I'm bringing attention while also celebrating what a lot of these women have already done and have been here doing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Natalia. Habiba. Yeah, just to add to those things. I mean, I think I had very similar experiences um, in my education experience of um, you know, not feeling represented or not, uh, you know, just seeing just one, one side of the coin. Um, what I also thought was really bizarre, even at that time was just how so many, so much of our narratives were being told by the white gaze, by white men, and how often there was a lot of appropriation of our techniques, of our ideas, of our stories, and that being presented as like some new and amazing thing uh, coming from uh, a white artist um, while never actually like learning about the artists who actually developed those things or if we did very, very briefly. Um, so that was something that always stuck out to me um, and something that I'm really glad that uh, we're beginning to, to shift. Yeah. I uh, on the question about and getting into, you know, part of the in this big topic is establishing and then disrupting or, or deconstruction, uh, you know, of, of the canon. And um, well, I wanted to mention one thing that I heard in, in your comments about um, about the the whether it's the, the artist of renowned white male, whether it's the professor, whether this is dominant. One of the, I work in K to 12 education. That's such a monster, just a huge issue, right? Of like going to school and not seeing anybody who has inflections that you do or movements or, or, or language. And then I talk to folks and say, well, imagine going to school and never encountering any literature that 
resembles you and never encountering topics and not even to mention math or science and some of those biases, but the canon is the canon and that's the frustration you're working in now. So in disrupting the canon, uh, is it, do we, do we, do we have to start again or, or is the disruption to break pieces in to create space into what's there? I mean, I think the canon is not the canon. It's not some unmovable, permanent uh, structure. I think that's where I'd like to start. And um, thank you, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I. I mean, you brought up the idea of uh, earlier. You said, "Well, do we have to throw out Shakespeare?" And no, we don't have to throw out people who have been held up as experts, but. I think we could we could um, think about the idea of biodiversity in our canon. We know, like scientifically, we know biodiversity helps the strength of ecosystems. So how is that not applicable to the stories we tell about what art counts and what art should be looked up to, what which artists we should be looking up to? I think biodiversity in our canon can only help to fuel our field. I think it's also like, I mean, you don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Um, it's important to look at our history and part of that history is the canon and the way it's been used um, to sort of suppress the ideas of people of color um, in this field. And I think looking at that can actually um, help generate some new ideas and some new really interesting work as well. Um, but I think it's important to constantly, constantly be looking back um, and seeing where we can build. Um, and as you mentioned about, you know, maybe breaking it into pieces or making space, I think that's, that's kind of exactly what's happening, that uh, BIPOC have sort of made their own seat at the table. They, you know, whether or not they were invited, just came on in and said, like, we're going to disrupt the structure um, a little bit. And that's kind of exactly what you see happening uh, right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, just to, again, I, I don't feel that we need to throw out the canon again. So to come back to your question, Ken, but, you know, something that Natalia said, um, I was thinking about, you know, uh, when I studied ceramic history and, and it, was, it was actually a fairly significant section on South American and Latin American ceramics just because my professor had a particular interest in it. But, but the point is that it was taught from the perspective of the white archaeologist who discovered, and it wasn't taught from a sense of cultural ownership. And um, so what I think we've been seeing over the last year, um, you know, since the Black Lives Matter sort of broke apart this, um, you know, internationally, this, this, this awakening around race and racialization uh, in all sectors, not just the art sectors of the world. I think, um, you know, what we're seeing is people starting to say, hey, you know, we're not going to have systemic change unless uh, we break those glass ceilings, unless we put people of color in positions that can make decisions um, and that aren't making decisions for us. So I've been really heartened. I mean, just in the last few months, I've, I, 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 you know, I follow all the, the arts listings and, and there has been an, a number of um, curators of color 
appointed across Canada. Um, it's, and it's really exciting to see uh, an Indigenous curator. Um, you know, so those are the shifts that have to happen to really, I think, disrupt the canon in, in, a, in, a, in a sustained way. Yeah. Natalia? Yeah. Um, I, I talk a lot about authority and, um, you know, I, I guess I'm, you know, I've curated a few shows and I'm doing archiving and research and it's been a long journey of taking the authority to say that I'm a researcher, I'm a curator, and this is what I'm doing. And I think the canon for so long has made me feel that um, because I'm not a professional or you know, has given me, what's that complex of um, imposter, imposter syndrome. syndrome. Um, so I've been fighting against that of like saying like, yeah, I, I could be a curator, historian, archivist, and and telling younger artists as, as I visit schools, like you could do this too. Like you have to take this authority upon yourself and do this work because this is what has been done for so long, it, you know, but now it, it's our turn to take that authority. I see um, the, the work, I wanted to ask a question uh, in general. Um, I see the, the, the art and your, what you're doing as an artist looking to disrupt and to engage in this. But I also look at all of you as uh, having another kind of uh, face as intellectuals, as, as intellectuals uh, of color engaging in the issues conceptually around uh, the canon. So there's also that, I see that within the academy, having gone to the university and college and all the space that's there. So when you speak to this as well, it sounds to me to, that you have another front or another presentation, like my professor looks like this and is presenting this. Do you encounter that just like in the, the, uh, the, the circles where you have in these discussions, the intellectual circles? I think like so much of of this topic in the canon is based in institution and like and systems that that have that have been around for so long and I think it's really hard to have this conversation only within the context of like the work I make um, and and not think about the institutions that I'm a part of or that I've come from and that I hope to be part of um, so yeah I think that this, that oftentimes I'm, I'm talking about this with with other students or um, when I'm giving like a, giving an artist talk or something, there's a lot of other um, academics present so that we are thinking about this beyond just the arts, but we're thinking about um, sort of these structures and, and how we can disrupt them. And, and as Heidi mentioned about, um, you know, putting people of color in roles that are decision-making roles um, that are at other levels in these institutions as well. Now, we're not just talking about at the, you know, showing art it's also about like who is deciding what art is being shown, who's deciding what what these shows are about, and what you know what what you know what's happening in our residencies and happening um, in our courses and stuff like that. So I don't know if that answers your question at all, but that's kind of where I go with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just in in, in the sense that engaging in the in, in these in, in these questions too. Like first of all, I know like I do a philosophy podcast, right? So you either have to be drawn to discussing philosophy or asking, you know, why is there something rather than you know, like you have to be uh, within that. And I work, I've trained in like look at me, my education, philosophy, it's all white man, 
all white men. The the my philosophy and stuff, all everything self self taught uh, as far as anything else. So that's what the canon is. Um, what the canon is to me. So there's all that um, additional work. I wanted to ask you about uh, your your experience in um, uh, identification. Uh, the, this large issue as far as identifying um, uh, persons of color in, in at this time and place and the power structures that exist kind of being like moving to appropriate. Um, uh, what I'm at, what I'm, what I'm getting to is um, the possibility of like identity driven work being used to exoticize or to get back in the same power dynamic that already exists. Do you fear that? Is, is that an active uh, issue um, in doing identity-driven work or disrupting the canon? I, I can jump on that question. I mean, for me, um, I've never really felt driven to make work about my experience being a second-generation Egyptian. I've never felt that that was the... Um, driving energy behind my work. And I used to think, oh, well, is that, is there something wrong with me? Because when I look around, especially now at this, at this particular moment, um, work that deals with identity in whichever um, form is being really eaten up right now. And so for me, um, I went digging in in art history, and I went looking for other artists who felt similar pressures and responded in a way that is similar to how I'm responding, which is, I am not just a brown woman. I I am not just a second generation Egyptian. My identity is much broader than that. And so um, with that, uh, that comes through in my work in terms of um, particularly with my finger paintings, like it, they are, they're composed with my imprint, right? So in a way they're very much about my identity. It is my fingerprint composing those works, but um, there's a, a, a level of abstraction and opacity between me and the viewer. Like, yeah, it's my fingerprint, which, contains very personal information, very, very uh, specific information to me, but it's not easily legible. Um, it could be anyone's fingerprint, right? Unless you have some police scanner or something like that. Um, yeah, so for me, that is that is a question I'm asking uh, in my work. It's a question that I'm asking myself as I make my work is what I should say. I wanted to I wanted to ask each one of each one one of you uh, about uh, politics. Natalia, are you a political? Are you a political artist? Are you forced to be a political artist because um, of your position? I think it, it. I never thought of myself that way until like 2016, 17, where here in America, when Trump started running and then was elected, and it was very much in the media, and it is this climate of being patriotic towards um, hating immigrants and hating people from Central and South America or countries of um, brown uh, people immigrating over. So 
my work started to shift then. Um, I've always made work about identity and it wasn't necessarily, you know, where I came from. It, you know, I, I would talk about experiences of, you know, what it is to start a family, to be a mother and um, have a family. So different aspects and just navigating the world as well, like as a woman. Um, but it shifted then as I felt like a responsibility to talk about immigrants and immigration and talk about like the, the cultural richness that immigrants bring to America. So I started kind of, I started talking about that and, you know, about the, the hardworking people that come over to America to, you know, to pick your, your food and gather your food and serve your food and kind of help the whole structure of America. So I started making work about that to, and show what, um, having a, a family here brings to America. So it shifted from that. So I think the politics at the time really made it like I, I, I had to address that because it was threatening my way of life and my, my family and my culture's way of life. Absolutely. Um, Habiba, uh, you forced to be a political artist or how do you view it? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't really think of it as being, well, I guess it is kind of forced in a sense, um, because I think as, as a Muslim woman and, and, you know, for most of my adult life, I was, as I, as I said, visi visibly Muslim is how I often term it, um, because I was covering my hair and people could tell. Um, I felt like my, my existence was politicized. Um, the, the way I choose to dress and the, the decisions I choose to make were often, you know, part of politics and uh, policies that were being, um, you know, put out, um, especially uh, like there was, we know about like the, the hijab ban that, you know, was, I guess, recently passed in France, um, but it had similar, similar debates over that here in Canada, in Quebec. Um, so oftentimes I, I kind of thought about it that way, that how my very existence is political um, and therefore the work that I make ends up being political. Um, sometimes, you know, that's a little bit more direct with the type of work that I make where I'm directly uh, talking about policy. And then there's other times where, um, you know, I'm more talking about identity, but there is still, I think, politics within that, that I can't really shake even if I wanted to. Sure, sure. Uh, Magdalene? Uh, political Are you forced to be political um uh, that's such a hard question i i want to say no and responding in that way and saying no i refuse to be forced into a certain definition is a political stance um I mentioned earlier, I, I looked into art history for, for my own permission givers to make work that wasn't overtly political. And um, my, uh, my, I've chosen Alma Thomas as one of my art moms. And uh, in, in similar to what she did in continuing to use abstraction as a layer of um, opacity, in, in performing my identity. So not letting the viewer have everything about me, 
uh, I, I think is a political stance, but it's a political stance that puts forward um, my right to self-determination as an artist. Like just because I am a woman of color, I do not have to make work to satisfy a, a hunger that has awoken right now for identity oriented work. So my answer to your question, am, am I forced to be a political artist is no, I choose to make work that adopts a political stance by saying, I don't have to do what anyone else is telling me to do. Yeah. Heidi. Um, yeah, I think it, it, it is a good, it's an interesting question. And, and, and I've been, listening to the others and thinking about what I want to respond to. But, you know, it it's so personal. I really started thinking about this responsibility of an artist to be uh, political in their work when I, I have worked and shared the stage with Jeffrey Thomas, who is um, a Six Nations uh, photographer, senior, you know, decorated uh, photographer, uh, and his son, Bear Witness, who's the uh, lead in A Tribe Called Red. And both of those individuals have, um, you know, spoken at length around uh, the responsibility that they have as Indigenous peoples and artists to be political in their art. And that really started me thinking um, about my own art, which, which again began as sort of self-portraits. Um, and as I'm moving through my career, it's, 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 it's extended to my ancestral roots. And... Um, I think uh, as I've started to uh, uh, write and research and uncover more of my family's history, and, I, and you know, within the last five years, I lost both my parents, but I have been learning more about them and their history that and things that they never told me. So I don't want to be long-winded about it, but I can't help but think how uh, I found out you know, after my father died, that he was integrally involved in the uh, race riots and um, protests in Canada in 1969 in Concordia, um, what was then, yeah, Sir George Williams. Um, and that, you know, in 1966, um, he was working in at Laurentian University uh, and his lab was burned down you know, and bricks thrown in their apartment and human excrement left on their doorstep. And that he never spoke of these things to me. And I grew up in this white bubble on the east coast of Canada, um, where really, honestly, there were so few people of color that people didn't, I don't think people really even knew how to be racist. I didn't understand my otherness wow. until I moved to Toronto at the age of 19. And immediately became, you know, a focal point for uh, racial slurs and, and uh, you know, on the receiving end of the kind of negative energy that one can experience around race and color and racialization in, in this country. So, I mean, that's a long-winded uh, answer. And, and I, I think that it comes back to my early statement uh, uh, when we started the conversation that there is a rage and there's an outrage and there's a sense of... Um, these stories need to be told because they're underrepresented and they can be told yeah. through art. Yeah. I, I wanted to, I wanted to just bring up a, 
a general just get your general impressions about the the question of uh, uh, hope or, or or thrill about what's going on. I personally am thrilled uh, about uh, the potential uh, for discourse, and I believe that younger generation is deeply and radically calling out bullshit on a way of uh, interacting with humans. That is racism. I think there's an aggressiveness to younger folks that are saying this bullshit narrative doesn't hold. And that feels different to me. Um, so that gives me hope because I feel that. Um, but for all of you, a uh, lot of, lot of, lot of stuff here, but, with what's going on, whether it's your art or what you're seeing in response to your art, what do, what are you seeing that's that that's hope us moving us forward, uh, disrupting the canon, uh, granting space? What what are each of you seeing that that gives you that? Okay, I mean, I'm gonna... for me, oh, um, yeah. it's actually what you said just a moment ago, Ken. That young folks aren't waiting anymore. They're they're demanding, they're taking their own authority and taking action to um, make sure that they feel safe in the spaces that they are moving through. Like students, for example, are demanding that the staff, faculty, um, the community in their, in their um, schools, they're demanding that, that the people around them make them feel, allow them to feel safe. Um, and that behavior that isn't, they're calling out behavior that is no longer acceptable. They're calling out the patterns of white as the default. And I think the fact that this is such a um, multi-noted uh, sort of, um, uh, a multi-noted resistance, like it's it's happening in so many places. Uh, it, it's a strong momentum because of that. It's it's a whole network pushing in a better direction. And and before others chime in, I wanted to also say, is, is since it's an open question, I don't mean to disclude an option. You can be not hopeful. <laughs> That's a reasonable, uh, you know, response to the to situation uh, as well. Others um, hope. Uh, what are you feeling as far as, you know, moving forward, uh, Habiba? Yeah, um, for me, it's like after, you know, after giving a talk or having students reach out to me through social media or email to just let me know that they feel seen. Like, to me, that is one of the most hopeful things um, to see. And, and it's such a rewarding part of this um, career. Um, because I remember being exactly in their spot where, you know, I would go to, we have these big ceramic conferences and just seeing, you know, uh, all the presenters are basically um, white artists um, and feeling so, so uh, not represented, not only in the presenters, but in the work that I was seeing in, in the exhibitions, um, especially the main exhibitions um, for that conference. Um, and having students tell me that they that they feel seen and they feel like they can they can do this um, is something that is so incredible. Um, but also seeing organizations, um, uh, uh, Natalia should definitely should speak on it, uh, like the Color Network, that are you know creating space for for um, artists of color 
Um, and then organizations like POT LA, um, uh, based in California, obviously, um, who at the beginning of this pandemic, like I've been, I've been following them for a while and I was just so inspired by the way they approached it of, of putting their staff first and, and, and making sure that, um, you know, people of color have, uh, you know, steady jobs in, in ceramics and also that they're providing, um, uh, instruction to, to students of color as well. Um, and, and organizations like that, that sort of are run and led by uh, BIPOC and are making space for, for them to me is so incredibly hopeful and exciting to see and seeing them get traction is, is incredible to see as well. Yeah. Yeah. Italian? Yeah, yeah I have hope and, you know, and I, I feel like I'm, I'm hoping to do my part in the community and I'm an organizer for the color network, which is a, a networking um, database mentorship place to ask. Um, and we curate shows and it's run by just people of color. So yeah, and, and we've been, you know, curating a few shows. And I think what is important is like thinking about multi-generational artists of, you know, older artists to not forget the work that has been done and, you know, has been done for us and current artists and then the younger artists that are coming up. So, and I, I think that gives me hope. And then just developing these really rich relationships that have come from running that organization and organizing and, and seeing other artists, you know, um, creating really great relationships from that have been, has been really hopeful and, and I think what what we're doing, and like, I th I think it's important to look at organizations like that to see where the future, you know, how to approach shows and the, the future, or how to go forward. You know, right now we're we're really pushing to have non um, identity, you know, make sure that we have some non identity shows because right now the it's very popular with a lot of places across. I think the I'd say for the Americas of having shows about specifically just identity. So we're making sure to have shows all about that, like within the umbrella of identity to non-identity. And then as well, we're looking to take out um, artists of color from titles um, so we can just have shows about different topics. And it's we're yes, we happen to be artists of color, but we're making shows about different and various topics. Yeah, Natalia, and thanks for the word organizing. I'm a union organizer, so I always think of what we're talking about here. And, oh, yeah, the organizing component of it is just exciting to me. Thank you so much. Um, and Heidi, uh, hopeful? Hopeful? Which, you know, you feel? <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I am hopeful. Um, I think having maybe been around longer than some of the others, I've seen um, – Things come full, full circle, and what I'm 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 hoping or what I'm hopeful is that it, it that the circle is is come around and it's going to continue. You can't see me because I'm on radio, but <laughs> but we're not going to continue the circle, but that we're going to continue on uh, an upward trend. I think what um, Natalia is saying again goes right back to my first statement about that the outrage of not being uh, kind of generally accepted in the main stage, stage excellence for excellence sake and, and creating, you know, exhibitions that are not identity themed, 
but include uh, artists of color and are putting them on the main stage is part of that. It's a huge part of that. And I um, have recently, uh, you know, stepped into a role on the board of the National Council for Education and Ceramic Arts um, that Habiba was just mentioning, because I also have been going to that conference for over 10 years. And I'm very hopeful, I mean, um, that uh, we are, we are, you know, that the organization is setting in place um, the kind of systemic change we need to sustain uh, change. Um, and I and I'm hopeful as I talk to other curators um, across the country. Yeah, I'm 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 hopeful. I, I'm hearing good vibes. I think that there's um, there's a lot of uh, will and good good energy. And I think I think this time we might not just be passing through, but you know, shifting really the paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hopeful. And then, but, but, uh, Magda, and I got to remember that when the pandemic started, you had an installation, <laughs> raw clay. And the story after that was the, just so I, ha I was like, just thinking about like that, ha having to leave an installation that's active and live, that is virus pulling in, in a building was such a ghostly haunting piece right at the beginning yeah. of the, it of was the pandemic it was such an odd um sort of uh i don't know uh, it, it felt oddly prophetic but obviously like obviously i'm not a prophet <laughs> it's not like i knew what was coming but it was just this strange um linking up between what was going on in the world and what had come out of my studio, what was going on in my mind, and therefore came out of the studio. Yeah, it was bizarre. Yeah, and on that too, uh, and, and 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 with you know, with with all your work, I, I mean, I think of environment, the environment, right? I think of of Earth too, because like I can't have the conversation that we just had about hope and not think about uh, Magdalene's virus and the, <laughs> but the, the 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 encroachment, the 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 ecological issues that that we're seeing, because. Like in a certain sense, like I'm less hopeful about that. It is an emergency as well, but there's also rising awareness um, in that. Do you find yourselves as artists uh, grappling with those, you know, grappling with those questions as well? Um, you know, uh, as as far as um, the environment, your use of materials, and 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 do you, is that a large piece in 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 what you do um, uh, in your work? Uh, or do you, I guess what I'm saying is, here's what here's why I want to get into, uh, and I'm not going to make an assumption here. There's an idea within ethics and like the ethics of care and a, a feminine uh, ethics theory that bring into the fact that you 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 have to consider people, you have to consider the environment, you have to take pause and create space for that. I don't want to make the assumption. Is that is that part of, of a part? Do you see that as part of your work that you're doing? I mean, for me, absolutely. Um, that is one of the major reasons that I leave a lot of my work unfired is the idea of um, not firing, not using um, the energy that it takes to fire the work and not creating more permanent um, sort of leftovers from me being here. Um, 
so with my unfired work, uh, I reuse those materials over and over again. I've been using the same clay since 2017, I want to say. Um, so for me, absolutely, it's a major uh, consideration in the way I work. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that and let other folks chime in. I don't think like it's been super conscious for me. Um, and if anything, it's been more about like um, community, like in, in the sense of like, the care of, of um, other people being able to benefit um, from the materials that I use. And so um, usually like I, I don't fire a lot of work either. Um, so often that clay gets uh, donated to an institution, to a school, um, so that they can reclaim that clay and use it for mold making or whatever other processes that they'd like. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, but I don't think that it's been a, a super conscious decision, but it just tends to be a way that I work anyways. So. Yeah, it, it's not part of yeah. my work either, um, but it's something that I do think of because I, I'm here in America, uh, the communities that are most affected by pollution, you know, tend to be uh, brown and black people. So I do think of it in, in that, but it hasn't been part of my work yet, not to say that it won't. But I do, I think that I live my life at where I, I'm not the best at it, but I try consciously to, to do things. And I do think about my, my practice and the materials and, you know, the process that and the resources I'm using. So I, I do, I'm a low fire. So I, I do think about how I don't want to take resources and I don't partake in a lot of the, or have ever the wood firing or some of the soda or um, salt firing, just because I mean, I'm not interested in that, but I'm also not interested in the things that use the most resources. I, I do think that I want to use the things that are less least impactful so yeah and Heidi is it active consideration for you um it, it, it's not an active consideration in my practice I mean I, I kind of make minimally I'm not like um profuse uh, I don't make uh, a lot <laughs> I make targeted things for specific things um but I think more generally in, in my life, it certainly is a part of my life and my life values and um, the values of the people around me. And and I think globally, like just to get philosophical about it, Ken, for a second, you know, globally, if, if you know, if humankind can't kind of get it together and, um, you know, share uh, vaccine recipes so that we can solve COVID internationally. How can we even possibly imagine that we might solve climate change um, because of the, um, you know, kind of corporate greed and, and uh, individual individualism that that is sort of taking over? Um, so that's a, a sort of a philosophical statement. Um, but um, yeah, <laughs> I think I'll leave it there. Well, that, that'll that'll leave me. You promise you, you you everybody promised me my my big question. Why is there something rather than nothing? So you promised me that. So the it's a good segue for um, uh, the philosophy. Um, Heidi, why is there something rather than nothing? Is that an existential question, or are we talking about <laughs> art? Um, 
I think you know I'm going to take that in in the context of uh, why yeah why make art and and why and and yeah you know why am I yeah. you know like 20 years ago I was pushing paper in the office so um, I think um, why why is there something rather than nothing um, I think that we have the opportunity to make people think and change and shift and every artist in every medium has that that opportunity and it's 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 just so important i mean um and i've recently finished a piece about um uh that, that tells the story of the uh, belfast irish linen production factory um, but it also if you can read the fine print or you get to see the video that I made about the work, then, you know, you'll understand that it's about um, a lot more. It's about, you know, industrialization and the potato famine and the mass exodus of Irish immigrants and their um, marginalization um, in the world. So, you know, an opportunity to, and, and an invitation to make art for an exhibition is always a chance. Um, it's always a chance to say something to the world and to ask people to uh, think about something they hadn't thought about, which I'm, I'm going to take one more second and say, I didn't get to your question around uh, the fear yeah. of exoticization. And I think, you know, that is something that Please I Please do that. Yeah, I have grappled with that uh, somewhat um, because I am working with images of um, in some some of my work around uh, beautiful exoticized images of Indian Caribbean women, um, and I am I am fearful that putting them out there will be misinterpreted, um, and so that's when the kind of the creation and the messaging it's so important to have people who understand it communicate it uh, properly. Yeah, thank you. I'm, re I'm realizing, Magdalene, that you're you're going to be in the position if you do want to answer. You could you could go rogue. You can like give a contradictory answer to the last time. You could say before the pandemic, uh, this is why there's some rather than nothing. After the pandemic, now there's nothing rather than something. So, get, <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to say, Magdalene? You've done it once. Yeah, so. I was trying to remember what I said last time, and I think last time we were talking together, Ken. I think I said something like, um, "I make something rather than nothing." to be seen. Yeah. But I think uh, I think it's broader than that. I think it's it's to be seen, but to look at things differently as well to not only say, hey, here, I was here. Um, but to also ask viewers to look at something in, from a different angle than they might might have previously. So yeah. to, to be seen, but to reconsider what has been seen. Yeah, I, um, I had a guest, uh, Ana Del Rocio, um, a while back. She's going to be in a movie called Woman of, Color, Woman of Color, which is, by the way, mark it down, going to be a tremendous film. Uh, they got their Kickstarter pass. But so I was like, Ana, I was like, OK, so why is there something rather than nothing? She said, women. And that was it. So, <laughs> um, uh, Habiba, why is there something rather than nothing? Um, I guess I think about it like we've already seen what nothing looks like in terms of the way we've been not represented for a long time. Um, 
And I think there needs to be something not only for the obvious reasons of, of getting our narratives across and, you know, fighting back against uh, oppression, but also just to like shake up homogenized aesthetics and narratives that have gotten pretty stale. And I think that um, adding to some, adding something um, can only make, uh, make it better and make it more interesting. Um, and, and in terms of, in a personal way, uh, why there needs to be something, um, I just, I, I, I think, I, I think most artists have that is, is the, the drive to make the drive to create. Um, I, I've kind of struggled over the years, but particularly last year, uh, with, with COVID and, uh, considering like maybe even not making art anymore. Uh, I had that moment of thinking like, maybe I should switch careers completely and, um, what would that look like for me? And I, and I had actually seriously started researching schools and, you know, other pathways. Um, and as soon as I started making again, uh, I got this commission to make the cups that I mentioned. And even though that that's so, so not in my wheelhouse of what I usually do, just doing that, getting back into making started to make my brain work again. in that, in those ways that are so exciting to me, and I, I really was quickly um, confronted with that, that, that I, I, I'm someone who needs to make, even if I take breaks from it, it's like a weird uh, relationship where it's like, sometimes I need space, <laughs> but after a while I miss it and I need, I have the desire to think and to create things. So there will always need to be yeah. something. I, I, I really appreciate your comments. Just as far as me thinking, that's like the relationship bit of what, you know, what you create with. I have a different relationship with each type of thing that I create. And I'm like, why? <laughs> like, you know, the relationship. And I always think it's healthy to say, should I be doing this? I remember when the pandemic came down, I'm like, who the hell wants to listen to some dude talk about why is there something rather than nothing on the on their computer? Like, seriously, I mean, it's a good, legitimate question. Like, you know, people are dying. So, um, great questions. Uh, Natalia, uh, why is there something rather than uh, nothing? To be, to be heard, to share and to communicate and to yeah, let people know I'm here and connect. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, we've been speaking with Magdalene Dijkstra, Natalia Arbelayez, Habiba El Sayed, and Heidi McKenzie. I, I want to tell you, um, obviously this is, there's there's a lot more um, to be said. I wanted to particularly and directly let you know that I've been honored uh, by your willingness and, and bravery just to come out here, you know, come on here and, and talk about this. Um, uh, I love the work that you're doing. Um, I saw the presentation you saw on Disrupting the Canon. Uh, I thought it was amazing. The frustration I felt with it was what I assumed your frustration with is like, look at this amazing person and let me do it for five minutes, but also let me talk about my work and also let me talk about the Canon and also let me talk about Disrupting the Canon. So part of this is just like to like, let's have the full conversation. And I wanted to thank each of you um, deeply for uh, for, for doing that. I just wanted to let you know that uh, directly. Thank you, Ken. Yeah, thank, thank you, Ken. You so thank you for having us on. This is Something Rather Than Nothing, 